Today on the Matt Walsh Show, as we head into another school year with our kids subjected to mask mandates and on top of the usual leftist indoctrination they'll experience, we need to ask one question. Is it possible to save the school system or is it time to simply abandon it? We'll talk about that also. CNN starts firing employees who don't get the vaccine and a Gallup poll finds that uh, basically no Hispanic person actually wants to be called Latinx. Big shocker there. And a journalist fires a so-called quote-unquote assault rifle for the first time, and his reaction is hilarious. Plus, the uh, medal-winning women's Olympic weightlifters are asked about the, the male who competed against them, and their response tells you everything you need to know, although at the same time, it tells you nothing. And in our daily cancellation, we'll have the story of a Hollywood actress who says she is expressing her love and devotion for her husband by divorcing him. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, if you have people who rely on you, which uh, which I'm sure you do, I know I certainly do, it's, it, it is, could never be more important to get life insurance. That is uh, really a responsibility you have to the people who rely on you. Um, it's a, I think it's a moral duty on top of just a, a practical necessity as well. And that's where Policy Genius comes in. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a, to- for, from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. Why should you compare? Well, you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You could save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. That is, uh, that's savings that I think almost no one, short of like multimillionaires, can afford to give up. The licensed expert at Policy Genius works for you, not for the insurance company, so you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. And that's a really important thing as well. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need, and you can compare personalized quotes to find your best price. And then you just choose the one you want, and Policy Genius handles all the paperwork. It's as simple as that. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. The Clark County School District, one of the largest in the country, has just unveiled a new equitable grading policy. It's the kind of policy that I would have loved when I was in school, which is about the harshest condemnation imaginable. Uh, the new system removes non-academic measures as factors in grading. So those measures include attendance, participation, responsibility, lateness. None of that matters anymore in terms of the grades. Students no, le- no longer need to worry that their grade in a class will suffer just because they aren't actually going to the class. Attendance was you know, considered a bare minimum requirement when I went to school. Now it has become a mere superficial detail. Also, all scores under 50% are abolished. Um, a child cannot get less than 50% on an assignment, even if they don't actually do it. Don't do it at all, and they spot you 50%. The word failing has been removed from the school's vocabulary. Now students earning a score you know, between 50 and 59% will be classified as emergent. Once again, I wish I had thought of this as a kid. No, Dad, I'm not failing math. I'm, uh, I'm emerging. The superintendent of the district, uh, Jesus Jara, recently defended the new policy, saying that, quote, our kids will graduate from this high school ready for the workforce in high-paying jobs. Yes, you know, those high-paying jobs where you don't need to show up or do anything or put in the slightest effort or actually succeed in any of the tasks you're assigned. Well, at least we can hope that these students, upon entering the job market, will be fired with similarly gentle language. Listen, I'm not firing you. I'm just saying your ass needs to emerge through the exit and never come back. That's all. This is, of course, far from the only equitable, quote-unquote, grading policy to be unveiled. 
in the last uh, couple of years. It's the direction that all school districts will, will eventually go. All of them. Of course, attending class is kind of a moot point anyway if there is no class to physically attend in the first place, though. Um, indeed, Biden's Secretary of Education gave a press conference yesterday where he was very open to the idea of shutting down in-person learning once again this year. Let's uh, listen to that. Is there anything metrics-wise or numbers-wise, threshold-wise, that you would look at and say, all right, maybe in-person is not the best answer right now, even if the year gets started? Or is it in-person no matter what, we have the mitigation tools? You know, we know what works. And yes, we're looking at the metrics. And obviously, in close consultation with CDC and local health directors, because there are many local factors that contribute to whether or not a school should be open. Now, that was just a longer way of saying, yes, we will definitely be shutting the schools down at some point, at least partially. That's how I read it. That would be my prediction anyway. And it's probably for the best, actually, because as kids across the country um, are, if they go to school, going to be forced to wear masks all day in their classes. Every day, another school district instates a mask mandate. Most recently, in fact, our district right here in Nashville has been added to the list. All students and staff will be required to wear masks all day, everywhere, from the bus to the classroom. Now, as always with these mask, mask uh, mandates, the one thing that's missing is any sort of rational science and common sense-based reason for it. Instead, we hear only from the adults that it makes them feel better and that it seems like it's necessary to keep the kids safe, though they offer absolutely no data to support it at all. Just to um, illustrate that point, here's a quick news report from our local ABC affiliate, here in town. And, and just listen to this and uh, you tell me, do, do you hear anything like, you know, a data point, a reason? Let's let's listen and find out. I feel a lot better sending my kid into school. And I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of parents feeling that same way right now. Yeah. There were some opposing parents, but I think there were a lot more supportive parents. And I was very happy to see that. Right now, my son can't get vaccinated, but he does have to go to school. So I want to do everything I can to keep him safe in that uh, in that context. The city is open. Citywide, no citywide mandate. There is no data to support any of this right now. There is not no state mandate, mass mandate. So why are we doing this to our children? And our job is to make sure that we are protecting our students. We cannot teach them if we cannot protect them. And so I would like us to continue to follow with the proven mitigation strategies that are um, available to us. Masks will be available on a daily basis for anyone who forgets to bring theirs to school. The board will reassess this mask requirement when all Metro government issued mask grant requirements are ended. Well, there was at least, it was an eight to one vote on the school board. And you heard from the one sane one. I think her name was Fran Bush. And she was the, she was the only one who was against it. The rest of it, though, what did you hear? I feel a lot better. I, you know, I feel better. We want to keep the kids safe. Lots of feels and wants here as, as usual, but is the mask necessary in order to keep kids safe from COVID, a virus which poses very little risk to them to begin with? Is it psychologically and physically healthy to have children wearing these pieces of cloth on their faces all day? How many of the kids even wear them correctly? How, how dirty do these things get by the end of the day? What effect does that have on their health? Do the health benefits actually outweigh the risks? Uh, these are all questions. And by the way, what does it do to children emotionally and developmentally to deprive them of the basic ability to see each other's faces? 
What does it do to children emotionally and developmentally and psychologically to make them feel like, speaking of feels, make them feel like everyone around them is sick? That the air itself is toxic. Has anybody wondered about any of that? Is there any data on it? Do they care about the data if it does exist? The answer to that question, at least the last question, is no. The point is simply that the adults in charge feel better when the kids cover their faces all day, and that's what matters most to them. Now, of course, we can protest these kinds of measures, and we should. We can object, just as we can object to the insane equitable grading policies, or to CRT in the schools, or the gender theory indoctrination, or any of the other radical left-wing indoctrination um, that, that public school children endure in every public school in America without exception. We can object. We should object. We can protest. We should, we should protest. But we're left still at bottom with a stark reality that when we send our kids into the system, we have no actual control over anything that happens. No actual control. No hands-on control. The schools own your kids as long as they are in that building and even when they're not in the building. That anyway is how the schools see it. And they don't hide the fact. And for all intents and purposes, they're right. The system has your child for most of his waking hours. The system is in charge of educating him and thus shaping his worldview and instilling him with a moral code, things which are inextricably linked to the act of education. That's another important point. People that say, well, we need to separate indoctrination and education. I, I just want my kids to be educated. I don't want them to be indoctrinated. That's impossible. The two are linked. You cannot have education without indoctrination. Unless you're educating a computer. Unless you're programming a computer. But when it comes to human-to-human -human education, it, it, is, it always comes packaged with a worldview. Always. No, it's not that I don't want my kid to be indoctrinated. I don't want, to be, I don't want him to be indoctrinated by them. I don't want him to be indoctrinated into that and what happens is that the system eventually will have more influence over your kids than you do. Your kid will become what the system makes him. There may be rare exceptions to that rule, but they are very rare indeed. All of these things we're witnessing right now, from the masking to the indoctrination and everything in between, is the system exercising its ownership of the children sent into its care. The mask becomes, in some ways, the most profound statement of ownership, almost like branding on, a, on cattle. And that probably is the best analogy because that's how kids in the system are treated. They're like farm animals to be conformed into a herd and then herded along in whatever direction it prefers. If your kid goes to public school, then, I mean, it's good to get involved as much as possible and to show up at the school board meetings and to join the PTA and do all that you can do. But this cannot be the ultimate solution to the problem of the public school system because these are Band-Aid measures. This is you with a bucket on the beach struggling against the tide. You can't stop it. You can only hope to interfere slightly. Interfering slightly is better than not at all. But it's not a solution. So what is the solution? What's the answer? The answer is the one I always give, but not everybody wants to hear it. The solution to the public school system, in the end, is its abandonment and then its collapse and its destruction. That's the solution. 
as long as we are determined to outsource our children's formation to the state, as long as we have given it that immense power, these problems will remain. There is never going to be a time when you can actually trust the state to educate your child. Never. It is too much power. It is too much power for any government at any time. But especially this government at this time. If we can improve anything at all in the system, it's only by degree. You can hope by getting involved to make it slightly less bad. But anything more than that will require fundamental and drastic change. You know, people say to me all the time, um, well, Matt, you, you point out all these problems. And what are the solutions? You don't give us any solutions. We want solutions. Well, my answer to that is, number one, there is value in pointing out the problem when much of the country doesn't see the problem. So we got to start with that. You know, you got to drag the darkness into the light. You got to start there. And in some ways, we haven't been able to get past that as a culture yet. I mean, we, we can't work to fix a problem until everyone sees that it is one. And so right now, we're at square one, just getting people to see that the problem exists. But the other thing with solutions is that when most people, when they say, I don't want to hear all these problems, I want to hear solutions. They don't really want solutions, do they? When they say solutions, they mean, okay, give me a five-step plan that's easy to do and will require almost no sacrifice on my part. That's what I want. You know, tell me to write a letter to these people. Tell me to hold a sign over here. Tell me to do this, to do that. And, uh, and then the problem will go away. You know, we are way past that. There aren't any, all of the serious problems in our culture, out of all of them, none of them can be simply solved that way. It requires drastic change. And so when it comes to the school system, if you really want to know the solution, it is to abandon it. It is to starve it to death by pulling your kids out of it. Oh, but we can't do that. We'd have to drastically change our lifestyle. I mean, we, we, we'd have to change everything. Yeah, I know. It's not easy. But it's the solution. There isn't another one. It's the only one. Now we have to decide, do we really want to solve the problem or not? Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, I don't know if I have mentioned this yet, but Ben Shapiro has a new book out, just came out, called The Authoritarian Moment, and it's on sale right now. And there couldn't be a more, a more appropriate time for it, a more necessary book for this time than The Authoritarian Moment, because we know we are experiencing the left's totalitarianism, and uh, it's only getting worse. It's not getting better. So if you want to learn not only about what's happening right now, but the history of it, and then most importantly, what we can do about it. You got to pick up Ben's new book, The Authoritarian Moment, on sale now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any other major bookseller. All right, you know, one of the, uh, one of the, one of the things with, with being a parent of young children is it is important to take their feelings seriously to an extent, Right. I mean, you're not going to affirm everything they say. That's another thing parents need to learn these days. Obviously, your kid comes along and says, you know, your four year old boy comes along and says, I'm a girl. You don't affirm that. 
But when they're upset about something, you also don't want to be dismissive. So you, you try to understand them on their level and, and sympathize. You don't want to be dismissive of, of, of their feelings. Um, and so, but sometimes that can be a challenge. And so like this morning, this, is, this really happened. Uh, I was about to leave this morning, and I heard a br- blood-curdling scream from upstairs in the boys' room. And uh, I go run upstairs because it sounds, you know, I, as a parent, you become, di- you become discerning of the different screams that you hear from your kids. And there's the, uh, just the whiny sort of scream that you'll ignore and not even pay attention to. But then there's the I'm hurt, I'm injured scream. And that's what, and that's what gets you into gear. And so this was a, I thought was a, a hurt, injured scream. And so I ran upstairs. I thought someone had, you know, fallen off of a bed and hurt, broken their arm or something. And I go in and uh, nobody's hurt. It's my four-year-old son had let out this scream of agony because, and I don't pretend to understand this. This is just what he told me. That um, he has these Paw Patrol books, right? Big Paw Patrol fan, unfortunately, because I hate that show. And he wants to have all of the Paw Patrol books in the world. He wants all of them. That's, that was his state. That's what he said to, to his older brother. His older brother explained to him, well, you know, you can't have all of them. Because besides, they can always print more and you're not going to be able to get all of them. So upon learning that he could not have every Paw Patrol book, he let out this, this enormous scream. And that's one of those moments as a, as a parent where you, you try to, oh, okay, that's, oh, that's what you're upset about. Well, you try as best you can to take that feeling seriously, but it's not always, it's not always easy to do. Um, all right, let's go. We'll start with this. From the Post Millennial says, Oliver Darcy, who works at CNN, has announced on Thursday on his Twitter that three CNN employees have been summarily dismissed from their jobs for coming to the office unvaccinated. Jeff Zucker adds in his uh, memo to Jeff. Did I just say Jeff Zucker? Jeff Zucker. Freudian slip there. Adds in his memo to uh, CNN staff. In the past week, we have been made aware of three employees who are coming to the office unvaccinated. All three have been terminated. Let me be clear. We have a zero tolerance policy on this. Um, and, uh, and that's all we know. I, I think at this point, at least last I checked, we don't actually know who the employees are. Well, it, was a, it was a senior media reporter um, and then someone in tech and anyone else. Now, the, the interesting thing here is that so they're firing employees who are not vaccinated. Jeffrey Tubin still has a job. So at CNN right now, the, the policy apparently is, I don't know if they have this in writing or not exactly, but I don't know if you look at the, at you go to HR and you get the, the employee handbook if it's going to say this. But uh, the policy is that you can masturbate in front of your coworkers and that is not a termination-worthy offense. But if you don't get a certain substance injected into your body, then that is. You can get fired for that. That's the policy over at CNN. Meanwhile, uh, more COVID news. Another Republican governor to uh, be ashamed of, Larry Hogan, is he spoke out yesterday against the conspiracy theorists who aren't getting vaccinated because that's, of course, you know, that's the only reason why someone wouldn't get vaccinated is just because they're a conspiracy theorist. And he said that uh, he, he threatened to lock down the state again. And he said, if I lock down the state, it's your fault, you conspiracy theorists. Let's listen to that. Look, I, I don't care what 
uh, misinformation or conspiracy theories that you have heard. Uh, the plain and simple fact is that these vaccines are working. If you're still unsure about the vaccines, uh, here is the important fact for you to consider. Nearly every single person hospitalized or dying with COVID-19 in Maryland right now is unvaccinated. Uh, those of you who uh, refuse to get vaccinated at this point are willfully and unnecessarily putting yourself and others at risk of hospitalization and death. You are the ones uh, threatening the freedoms of all the rest of us, the freedom not to wear masks, to keep our businesses open, and to get our kids back in school. And tragically, it may be only a matter of time until you do get COVID-19. That's some nice freedom you have there. Be a shame if something happened to it. No, to be clear, Larry Hogan, Republican governor of Maryland, he is the one threatening to shut down businesses, threatening everyone's freedom. That's what he just did there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many people are unvaccinated. Could be 90% of the country unvaccinated. That's not going to, that in and of itself isn't going to cause a business to shut down. No, no business ever has been shut down because people didn't get vaccinated. That is a decision that people in power make in response to that fact. And it, 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 un, obviously unnecessary decision, along with other adjectives you could use in response to it. You know, all of these, and by the way, Larry Hogan, another just nothing of a Republican, and he, he never, you're, you're never going to see that kind of forcefulness from that guy on any issue. This is like the first time he's ever put his foot down about anything. And it's about vaccines. All of these idiots, they still haven't considered, because they're so drunk on their own power, they haven't considered the other option. So many different strategies have been attempted to convince people to get a vaccine. A lot of it is threatening. Uh, The the two primary strategies, strategies, of course, threatening and blaming. Point the finger of blame. This is all your fault, you unvaccinated people. While at the same time, fear-mongering by saying even vaccinated people are getting sick. Well, if even vaccinated people are getting sick, then how do you know it's the fault of the unvaccinated? that the sickness is still spreading. But those are the strategies, blame and threaten, blame and threaten, blame and threaten. And then sometimes they mix in um, infantilization. So we throw a little bit of that in too. Condescending to people. Let's bring a juvenile out to sing, vax that ass up. None of these people have thought of a fourth option, which is speak to people like adults and with respect. Give them the information that you have. Give them all of the data. Don't hide anything. Be honest. Be upfront. Be forthright. And say, you know, I think you should get vaccinated. Uh, Here's my case. This is a decision that you're going to make. We're not going to force you to make it. 
We're not going to force you to inject any substance into your body. No matter how I feel about that substance, even if I think it's a great idea. But here's the information, and uh, I think this is a choice that, that you should make in consultation with your doctor and so on and so forth. How about that for a message? You ever tried that? Now, is that going to convince every single unvaccinated person to get vaccinated? No, there, there are some people who simply are not going to do it. Of all the unvaccinated people right now, if we were to break them up into pieces, and I don't know what the percentage is for each, but uh, there's a certain portion who just are not going to do it no matter what you say. I mean, you could threaten to actually put them in prison, and maybe we'll get to that point. Um, in fact, I'm sure we will get to that point, at least in some states, and that still won't convince them. And then you have other people that are kind of in between, and, and then you have uh, you have people who, you know, are, are maybe still, like, aren't completely against it, or could maybe be convinced. Um, but are also a little bit worried about it. And talking to some of these people, I know they exist because I've talked to some of them. And, but they also get suspicious when they hear this kind of language. The threatening and the blaming, not being forthright, not being honest, that makes them suspicious. And for good reason, in general. Like when, when, when agents of the state are threatening and blaming, there's a reason. It, it's, a, it's a good reaction to be skeptical. That's a good instinct to have. So as I said, I don't know how large that percentage is. The people that are still, you know, could still be convinced kind of on the, on the edge of it a little bit. But they're the only ones you can reach, and this is not going to do it. Just isn't. And if you, if, you, if you do believe that this is all a conspiracy theory and that all of the quote-unquote anti-vaxxers, uh, people who haven't been vaccinated, even though of all the people that haven't been vaccinated, not all of them are anti-vaxxers. A certain portion are anti-vax in the, in, the, in, the, in the sense that they're simply against this vaccine, period. Maybe against all vaccines. That's a certain portion. But a certain portion are, you know, don't have any problem with the vaccine necessarily. They just don't think they need it. But if it was true that all of this is, these are all just conspiracy theorists, you are not helping to quell the conspiracy theories by doing this, by threatening to take freedoms away. All right, let's go here to a Gallup poll. Just a quick, interesting note, though certainly not surprising at all. Um, Gallup conducted a poll asking Americans how they kind of uh, identify themselves in terms of ethnicity and race and what, what terms do they prefer to be called. And so... Uh, for example, they asked um, uh, black people, do you prefer to be called black or African-American? It's kind of an easy, sp even split, 52-44, and 4% had no opinion. But then they asked uh, Hispanic respondents, what do you prefer, Hispanic, Latino, or Latinx? Or Latinx, I think is how we're supposed to pronounce that. At least that's how we pronounce it in English. That word, L-A-T-I-N-X, that, that cannot be pronounced in Spanish. The word just doesn't exist. You can't pronounce it. Um, and here's what they found. The question was, if you had to choose, which term do you lean toward 
Hispanic, Latino, or Latinx. And 57% has said Hispanic. 37% said Latino. 5% said Latinx. Only 5%. And even that seems a little bit high. So I, I'm, I'm doubting even the 5%, but that's the most they could get, was 5% of Hispanic people actually like this term. Which, again, is consistent with my own experience talking to people who are Hispanic. I, I, I haven't met one who, who refers to themselves that way or wants to be referred that, to that way. And you see these kinds of poll results, and I guess we're supposed to see this as a victory for... Not for conservatism, but just for sanity, for common sense, for a victory for proper grammar and language. But it's actually not, because you see how this term is so unpopular, and nobody actually uses it. And that's what the polls confirm. Nobody wants to use it. It's nonsensical. It doesn't even mean anything. Uh, And yet, we all know the term, don't we? We all know it. So this powerful minority of people, this is yet another thing where they've been able to inject this into the public consciousness. The fact that they've been able to do that with almost no cooperation from the actual group of people they're trying to label, that only speaks to their power. That's actually... If I were to look at this from the pessimistic angle, as I often do, this, this is really a victory for the left. Because they can point to that and say, you see, nobody even uses this word or wants to use it, and yet you all know the word. We, we have forced you to know this word. And, it's, and it actually is being used. It may not, it's not being used by normal people, but it's being used by people in power. It's being used on government documents and so forth. So this is yet another thing that we've just been able to wedge into um, public discourse against everybody's will. But we have, we have, this is a victory for us, they would, they would probably say. All right, next. Um, speaking of victories for the left, now they say that silence speaks louder than words. Well, I think that's the case here. The, met, the medal winners gold, silver, bronze for women's weightlifting did a press conference a couple days ago. And um, I want you to watch this entire thing because they were pretty talkative. You know, they were at a press conference and they were asked questions and they had plenty to say until the questions turned to a certain subject and then they all kind of clammed up. Let's watch this. This is for Emily. Uh, You went to the United States earlier this year and you trained side by side with Sarah in Utah. What was that experience like uh, then and now when you are competing on the same Olympic stage? Um, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, I was really honored to be invited out to the States to train with the guys and especially Sarah, you know, we, we get on really well. Um, we're very like-minded people um, and it was just really, you know, inspiring to push each other and um, to get each other ready for these Olympics. And, you know, I'm absolutely thrilled that I managed to share a podium with her because she's, uh, she's a real sweetheart. It was a historic night here uh, with Laurel Hubbard competing as the first openly transgender in a uh, in a uh, individual event, and I was wondering, you know, what you felt about that, and what you felt that, that it took place in in your sport. No, thank you. No, thank you. Don't want to talk about it. Nothing to say. Of course, if they thought it was great, if they thought it was just great to have a man 
uh, competing against them in a in 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 a women's in a women's sports, then they would they would say so, because that's what the media wants to hear. So if they loved it, then they would say, "Oh, I think it's great. Yeah, we should have more men. Fantastic. I love it. I you know I, I love to see the destruction of my sport. I think it's the greatest thing ever." If that's how they felt, they would have said it. Um, so it's it's pretty clear, no surprise, that they're not in favor. Um, I, I think we can pretty reasonably assume that almost every female athlete in the country at every level feels this way. Whether they say it out loud or not. But most of them are not going to say it out loud. And you know, and I can under, I can I can understand the silence. I can I understand what motivates that, because they don't want to get involved in this issue. They don't want to talk about this. They just won the medals, right? They they, they don't want the story to be about this, and that's what it would it would turn into. Then there's going to be the immense blowback and everything else, and there's going to be consequences to their career and 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 so on and so forth. Any, any sponsorship, I don't know what kind of sponsorships a female weightlifter could potentially get, but I'm sure there are some, and those are going to go away if they start speaking out against this. Um, so I, I, I get that, I really do. But at the same time, it's like we talked about at the top. You know, people want solutions, but they want the easy ones. They don't want to make serious sacrifices. And so most of the time when you hear someone say, what's the solution? I, I only want to hear solutions. The word they're leaving out is easy. What's the easy solution? When most, when in most cases there is not an easy solution, especially when we're talking about our culture, fixing problems that are deeply embedded in the culture. There's not an easy solution, and that's the case here too. That at a certain point, people need to have some courage. I understand why people don't have courage. I understand, again, the instinct to not want to get involved. And I'm very sympathetic to that. I mean, these female athletes, they didn't sign up for this. You know, they, they don't want to get tossed into the middle of, a, of this drama over this guy who can't. I get that. It's like anybody else. You know, people working their normal jobs uh, are, are, encounter a lot of this kind of thing, and they're supposed to just put up with it. They don't want to speak up because they could lose their job, and you got to, you know, you, you need your job. You got to provide for your family. All these things. So I get all of that, but but um, at a certain point, some courage is required. And if we're not going to have any courage at all, if we're not willing to make any sacrifices at all, then there is. No hope. Okay, you may as well, I mean, flee into the woods, flee into the wilderness, go live in a desert in a cave or something. Get out while you can. Go find a, go find a, 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 a deserted island somewhere. I don't know. Maybe go down to Antarctica. I, go somewhere. Because there is no hope in this culture at all. It is nothing but darkness and despair that lays before us if we have ruled out Simple courage. And that means just normal people who don't want to get involved in these kinds of things are going to have to get involved. And get involved just means speak up. Say, I've had enough of this. 
Think about that woman at, at the, the Wee Spa in Los Angeles. Just a normal woman. Okay, I'm sure she doesn't wake up every day saying, oh, I, I want to get involved in trans issues today. But she was in the, in the locker room, and she saw a naked man walk in there, you know, displaying his penis to all the women and children. And she said, no, absolutely not. And she just reacted with some courage. Um, that's what women need to do in locker rooms when the men come in and when they intrude in sports. That's what men need to do also. You know, what about all the men? What about, what, you know, there was a, a woman speaking out at, at Wee Spa. What about all the, there weren't any other, you know, the husbands were not in the locker room when that guy walked in. But many of the women in that locker room have husbands. And I'm sure those women came home and told their husbands what happened. Why aren't the husbands beating down the door and saying, what are you doing? Subjecting my wife and my children to this. So some basic courage is needed to begin with. That's like step one. If we're to have any hope in this culture of solving any of these problems and reclaiming it at all, then it's going to require us all to have some courage and speak up and not be silent understanding that there are going to be consequences and we will suffer those consequences and the consequences might be severe for us. We might lose money. We might lose, you know, uh, we, might use, we might lose standing in our community. We might, we might have our friends and family turn against us. I mean, all that might happen. It probably will happen for a lot of us, but we have to be willing to endure that or there's no hope. All right. What else do we got? Okay, let's go. Let's lighten the mood a little bit here. This is uh, just a lot of fun. Here's a story in a Vermont newspaper called Seven Days, and it's written by a guy who had his first experience with what he calls an assault rifle at a, which is not a real thing, but that's the, the term that these people use. So he's at a gun range. He had his first experience with one of these things. And uh, here's what he says. He says, while the pistol was manageable, even comfortable to hold and fire, the rifle was a different beast altogether. Everything about it, its weight, tactical scope, and uh, overall lethality was downright intimidating. The fact that the first magazine refused to click into place didn't help either, further unnerving me. What if I just broke a $3,500 rifle? A fresh magazine worked just fine, though, and after loading it, I sent the target out to 15 yards. When ready, I lined up the target in the crosshairs, pulled the stock onto my shoulder, squeezed the trigger, and ba-boom! He actually wrote ba-boom with four exclamation points. It is difficult to describe the impact, physical and personal, of that first shot. It felt like a meteor had struck the earth in front of me. A deep shockwave coursed through my body, the, re the recoil rippling through my arms and right uh, and my shoulder with astounding power. Being that close to an explosion of such magnitude, controlled and focused, rattled me. I composed myself and continued to fire round after concussive round. The puffs of acrid gunpowder spoke smoke carried downrange by a powerful ventilation system. My accuracy gra gradually improved until it became easier to hit the target. Uh, it was exhilarating, but I never got comfortable firing it. I'm not sure what scared me more, the power of that weapon or the fact that I could have taken one home that day. Uh, and here he is just talking about a rifle. That was his experience with a rifle. No, no shame whatsoever. For, for so many men these days. You know, it's one thing as a man 
to be afraid of loud noises and to be, fr- to be afraid of a rifle that you're firing. Uh, I understand if the rifle's pointed at you, you're going to be afraid of it. But you're the one holding it, you're pointing it at a target, okay? Like, it's probably not going to explode and kill you. Um, it's one thing to be afraid of that, but to tell everyone, to be so open about it, and then to write an article advertising the fact that's a different beast altogether. All right. Um, let's see. Let's move on to reading the YouTube comments. Let's see. Ken says, Matt's commentary on the whole Cory Bush thing is kind of dumb. What she uh, says and did regarding police and security, it's not hypocrisy. She never said she wanted to defund security or police for herself or doesn't believe that she has the right to personal protection. Therefore, it's not hypocrisy. It's hierarchy. Pretty important distinction to make. Also, did Matt just use the term Karen, a racist slur referring to white females, developed and used by the left as a racist insult against white people? So now we have Matt Walsh using the left's language to attack and disparage his own race of people. Fantastic things are going great. Uh, Keep up the great job, Matt. Okay, well, Ken, you, um, I want to be nice about this and want to be gentle about it, but you appear to be hallucinating. So you might want to listen to the commentary before calling it stupid because I specifically said at the end when it comes to Cori Bush that that the, the hypocrisy is the point because it's all about hierarchy. It's all about her statement that she's better than the rest of us. That was the whole point of the monologue. That's the point it was leading to. And um, as far as using the word Karen as a slur against white females, I didn't do that. I think you're hearing things. I, I said many times on the show, I've said many times, I've done whole segments on how um, I consider that a racial slur. And so, no, I'm not going to use it myself. I, I, did I say it? Was I quoting someone and I said it? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Um, Lulu Well says, no way Matt is talking about Chris Chan. It's stuff like this that convinces me we're in a simulation. A lot of comments like this. I mean, apparently, I, I had no idea who Chris Chan was at all, but I'm I'm to understand now, based on the comments, that he's apparently a well-known person in some corners of the internet, and his his life has been very well documented. Um, in fact, I, I looked on YouTube. There's like a 60-part documentary or something about this guy. I don't know. Um, this was my first experience with Chris Chan, and I I would have to say I hope to never have another one. Let's see. Matt, another comment says, Matt, as I roll into the weekend, I'm looking for a good playlist. Other than Pooh Shiesty, Cardi B, and BTS, what are you rocking in your CD player right now? Uh, Well, of course, you know, those guys also, Spot'em, Got'em, DaBaby, Lil Baby, Bad Baby, Sweet Baby, all the babies, Takashi 69 and Celine Dion, another one of my favorites. Uh, let's see. Another comment says, Matt, I can think of one solitary example of a Democrat saying they regret a law that they helped pass. It was Joe Biden. He said he regretted the 1994 crime bill. But other than that, yeah, no, they never admit they were wrong or say they regret a law they passed or, or signed on, signed on to. Uh, yeah, you're right about that. So that, that's one example. Um, probably there have been some Democrats, I'm sure, who have expressed regret in, uh, in, in their support of the Defense of Marriage Act. Now, because there was a time, remember, not all that long ago, when almost every Democrat, and certainly every mainstream Democrat, was opposed to gay marriage. And it will always 
it always kind of trip kind of kind of trips you out to to think about how recently that was. Going back to 2008, almost every mainstream Democrat on the national stage, to include Barack Obama, was a defender of traditional marriage. And so I'm sure some of them have expressed some regret about that. So once again, it's it's like the the few good things they do that, of course, they're going to regret. And um, finally, here's a message on Twitter that I happen to see and want to respond to. It says, hey, love the show. I would love to hear your take on married couples having separate finances. This seems to be pretty common nowadays. And I personally think it's ridiculous. Let's, this kind of dovetails into what we're going to talk about in the daily cancellation. But I will say this very briefly. Uh, yeah, separate finances doesn't make any sense to me when you're married. You're either going to be married or not. If you don't want to share everything with your spouse, you don't. if you don't even want to share your money with your spouse, then probably just you shouldn't be getting married in the first place. Nothing good ever comes from that, by the way. When you start separating money and saying, this is my money, that's your money, nothing good comes from that in a marriage. Unless we're talking about just, okay, we each have a, a weekly allowance of just kind of spending cash that we can use to buy coffee and that kind of thing. I mean, that's one thing. But to say, here's my account, here's your account, nothing good ever comes of that. You know, I've been telling you um, incessantly about the Daily Wire backstage VIP experience, and I've been telling you for days that it's your last chance to get signed up. And uh, it turns out that today is also your last chance. But this is this is the last, last chance. On Monday, you might have your last, last, last chance. I don't know. But don't risk it. What you want to do is go to dailywire.com slash backstage, enter code backstage for 25% off your membership, and you get automatically entered to win one of the coolest trips you'll ever take, which is you get to come here, all expenses paid trip, and um, and you're going to stay at Daily Wire. You're going to visit the Daily Wire studios, take a tour. You're going to meet all of us. You're going to have some whiskey, smoke some cigars. It'll be a great time. So um, this is your last chance. Friday, August 6th. Well, there really is. This really is actually your last chance. What do you know? So again, head to dailywire.com slash subscribe with code backstage to get 25% off your membership and a chance to win the ultimate backstage experience now. I think I really sold that. That was a great read. Let's move on to this. We've, uh, you know, we have a lot to celebrate here at the Daily Wire, including the success of our newest podcast, The Morning Wire. Intent on supplying Americans with a daily dose of nothing but the facts has been topping the Apple and Spotify charts since its recent release because it's the only daily news podcast that values your time and the truth. And uh, But you know, lots of people are obviously listening to it. We are greedy. We want even more. So we are asking you to make sure you subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Subscribe now to The Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to leave that five-star review if you like what you hear. Let's get now to our daily cancellation. So today for our daily cancellation, we're going to cancel Kate Bosworth. You may remember Kate Bosworth as the actress who played in that movie Almost Famous, but you're incorrect. That was Kate Hudson. Then you might say, oh yeah, wasn't she in all those underworld movies? And again, no, you're thinking of a Kate Beckinsale in that case. She's also, she's also not the one who was married to Tom Cruise for 10 minutes. That was Katie Holmes. Um, in the early 2000s, there was a veritable explosion of Kates, and they were always starring in the third most popular movie at the box office at any given time. Of all the Kates, of course, only Kate Winslet remains a popular actress today. Recalling the movie that launched Kate Winslet's career, you might say that she is still alive and clinging to the driftwood while the other Kates sink into the dark, icy depths of obscurity. All that to say, Kate Bosworth is an actress, though I don't remember what movies she starred in. And frankly, I've 
been discussing the cinematic history of women named Kate for too long now, especially because it has nothing to do with the point. So the point is that um, as I am informed by the headlines, Kate Bosworth and her husband of eight years are getting divorced. Now, this news would be of no interest to me or to anyone if not for the manner in which it was announced. Now, it's common for celebrities these days and even non-celebrities to get divorced and then attempt to dress up their marital failures as something beautiful and profound and even romantic. The most infamous example is Gwyneth Paltrow, who, uh, when announcing her divorce to the guy from Coldplay, said that they were not getting divorced, but rather embarking on a conscious uncoupling. Now, if you're wondering what a conscious uncoupling is and how it differs from a typical divorce, Paltrow's website has an article written by two New Age fruitcakes with doctor in their names explaining it. It says, quote, For our purposes, conscious uncoupling is the ability to understand that every irritation and argument within a relationship was a signal to look inside ourselves and identify a negative internal object that needed healing. If we can remain conscious of this during our uncoupling, we will understand it's now we relate to ourselves internally as we go through an experience that's the real issue, not what's actually happening. From this perspective, there are no bad guys, just two people, each playing teacher and student respectively. When we understand that both are actually partners in each other's spiritual progress, animosity dissolves much quicker and a new paradigm for conscious uncoupling emerges, replacing the traditional contentious divorce. Well, that clears that up. But Kate Bosworth has upped the ante. In a post on Instagram, which has been reprinted many times in the media and has been shared by people who insist that it is just the most wonderful and beautiful thing you'll ever read, Bosworth announced the severing of her marriage vows in a way that is, it's worth quoting, I think, at some length. Worth it for the laughs, at any rate. So, she writes, The beginning is often the best part of love. Fireworks, magnets, rebellion, the attraction. The onset signals a wide-open expanse of possibility. Split a burger with someone when you're falling in love and you can die happily knowing that this is your last meal. Side note there, who the hell splits a burger? <laughs> now, I love my wife, but she has to order her own damn burgers, for God's sake, okay? Uh, anyway, buy a bottle of whiskey and share shots. Pour me a waterfall. Play that perfect song on the jukebox and dance with someone you've known your whole life, though you met just minutes ago. Inherently, we fear an ending. To lose what, you've, what you have because you got what you wanted. To be attached to the expectation of the outcome. The great unknown. What if we chose not to fear, but instead to love? If that most delicate and vulnerable last flicker to the flame became another type of furnace entirely. Perhaps this will sound strange to some, romantic to others. To us, this is truth. Our hearts are full. As we've never been so enamored and deeply grateful for one another as we do in this decision to separate. Together over the last 10 years, Michael and I have chosen love every time. We hold hands as tightly today as we entangled fingers on our wedding day. Our eyes look more deeply into one another with more courage now. In the process of letting go, we have come to acknowledge that our love will never end. The connection does not simply disappear. The love deepens. The heart expands. We know the 4 a.m. calls are coming. Songs will be exchanged to communicate only what songs can do. We laugh as we plan for our next movie together and are excited to share our latest collaborations. We believe the most epic love stories are those which transcend expectation. Our greatest honor has been to experience love like this and to continue to marvel at the beauty of love's evolution. What happens when we reach the end of something and realize we're just at the beginning? Wow. 
what a tremendous load of um, although I think I, I, did, I, I did her some favors in my performance of that Instagram post, I think. I think I made it sound way better than it was. But just to summarize, according to Kate Bosworth, the most epic love story, the truest love story, is one where you break your promises, abandon each other, and run off to have sex with other people instead. That's a, that's a love story in the same way that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a medical drama. You know, carving people to pieces is the opposite of medicine. Breaking up your marriage is the opposite of love. In a marriage, love is the choice you make every day to maintain that bond and to remain loyal to the person that you pledged your life to. To sever that bond is to choose not to love. And that is your choice no matter how you feel while you're doing it. If you feel warm and fuzzy about someone while you're in the process of betraying them, you're still betraying them. You know, Judas may have still harbored warm feelings for Jesus at some level when he took the 30 pieces of silver, but he still took the 30 pieces of silver. And by the way, betraying your spouse doesn't become any less traitorous just because your spouse is consenting to it. I think here's the point that's largely lost in modern times, that it's what leads to the dissolution of so many marriages. It's also what leads to hilariously smug, pompous, and narcissistic divorce announcements like the one we just read. The point is this. Love is an act. Okay, it's not a feeling. Love is a thing you do. It's not an emotion you feel. To understand how and why that's the case, just think about another virtue, closely related and one that Kate Bosworth also humbly and falsely attributes to herself, courage. Okay, is courage an act or a feeling? Well, it's obviously an act because, in fact, courage is the most, is the most courageous when it's performed in spite of feelings. If somebody acts bravely, and, and doesn't feel scared when they're doing it, then they're not really being all that brave because anyone can do something if they're not afraid to do it. That's not, nothing impressive about that. Even if, it's something, even if someone is doing something that would make you afraid if you were doing it, it's not really courageous for them if they're not afraid. What's courageous is when someone acts bravely while feeling scared. Okay, that's when courage really becomes evident. Courage is the act of doing something good or noble or worthwhile in spite of fear. The same goes for love. If you act lovingly towards someone because you feel enamored with them, that's fine. I mean, it's nice to feel those feelings, but anyone can do that. There's nothing special about that. Real love is to act that way towards someone no matter how you feel. Even when you're angry or upset or tired or your relationship is strained or you're feeling resentful or whatever. If you choose to love only when your feelings align with that choice, then all of your expressions of love towards the other are really just expressions of love towards yourself. You're choosing to love when it makes you feel good, and and then you're making other choices when those other choices make you feel good. So you see, it's all about you in the end. You're married to yourself. Your spouse is just a stand-in for your own ego. They're kind of like a brick wall, and you're just over there bouncing a, a tennis ball off of them. The love is a tennis ball that that you bounce off of them only because you know it comes back to you. There's no sacrifice. You're not giving anything. Your relationship is a mercenary endeavor. I commit to you in exchange for the good feelings that you give me. If those feelings go away, then you're useless and the arrangement is over. This is how lots of people approach marriage these days, although they may not be as absurdly pretentious about it, but it's how they approach it. Now, I'm not saying that feelings don't matter in a marriage. 
or that you shouldn't feel warmly about your spouse, or that if, you, if, if they make you feel bad, it's totally okay, and you should simply adore it forever and never try to change it. Um, we are humans, after all. Feelings are part of the bargain in any human arrangement, and we can never say that they don't matter. What I'm saying is that love it's, is not itself a feeling, and that feelings cannot serve as the foundational basis of a marriage. Your union has to be rooted in something deeper and less fickle than that. To be rooted in feelings is to not be rooted at all. Your marriage is then just a light and flimsy little pathetic thing laying on the surface, waiting for a mild breeze to blow it away. And that breeze will certainly come. And at that point, your marriage, like Kate Bosworth's, will be canceled. And today, I have to say, unfortunately, so is she. So we'll leave it there for today and for the week. Hope you all have a great weekend. We'll talk to you on Monday. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. John Bickley here, Daily Wire editor-in-chief. Wake up every morning with our new show, Morning Wire. On today's episode, the political war over COVID escalates, universities roll out new vaccine mandates, and a new bill proposes a universal basic income for Americans. Join us and get the facts first on the news you need to know with our show, Morning Wire. Morning Wire.